Greetings. On this Tuesday, July the 29th of 2014, this is David Thompson. The message today, which I received through the casting of lots, is Romans chapter 10. So we will begin to read this message first. And I will seek, even without any preparation, uh, to share what the Holy Spirit would have shared from this passage of Scripture. Of course, I always do about a half hour at the maximum of meditation, between 15 minutes and a half hour on this, on whatever chapter I receive. So beginning in Romans 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who shall ascend into the deep, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith, which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart a man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went into all the earth, and their words on to the ends of the world. But I say, did not Israel know? First, Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not after me. But to Israel he saith, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. This passage of Scripture is the beginning of Paul emphasis on God's plan for the nation of Israel, which goes mainly 
from chapter 9 to chapter 11, with chapter 10 being the central chapter. And Paul here is expressing his great desire for Israel, which is his people, and God's people that brought the Messiah into the world through a pure lineage within their nation. He is expressing his desire that Israel might be saved in every sense of the word, not just in being delivered from the Romans at the present moment. No, he's talking about something far greater than that. He is talking about being saved individually and corporately as a nation to the place where God dwells among them. And as it says in the book of Revelation of the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven in Revelations 21, where there will be no more death, nor crying, nor pain. And it goes on and describes the 12 gates, which represent, which it says, have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on those gates. All of us that have truly come into a genuine relationship of being brought forth by the Spirit of God, To know him, that is, being born again of the Spirit, are those that are also inheritors of the New Jerusalem. And we all will have characteristics, spiritually speaking, just like there's characteristics of various stones, whether it's a diamond or a ruby or a sapphire or an amethyst, and we know that the city has... 12 foundations of 12 different stones. And this also speaks of the uniqueness, and of, in this case, particular outstanding uniquenesses in 12 aspects of God's people, even of those that don't have their natural lineage from the nation of Israel, when they enter that heavenly Jerusalem, will enter through one of those gates and obviously, if they're going into that particular gate, whatever the name is, whether it's Judah or it's Issachar or whatever, no doubt that is characteristic of qualities that God has formed in their lives to bring forth an aspect of his glory. Of course, that doesn't mean there isn't an infinite variety of stones, spiritually speaking, in the body of Christ. Paul here is discussing God's plan for the nation of Israel. And in this chapter, he emphasizes what has happened to Israel at the present moment, where things look dark and glim and bleak. But he sees the overall picture and describes God's plan. And he says, has God cast away Israel? God forbid. And mentions what his plan is for Israel as a nation corporately. But what he is speaking about corporately is also a truth in our lives individually, in what many of us go through in order to come into the saving knowledge of a relationship with God where we receive him dwelling in us and thereby eternal life by the Spirit of God. But there is something that even happens to God's people that once knew a relationship with him. For the nation of Israel once knew a close relationship with him. Many of them. There was Joshua. And we can go back to the very beginnings of time. Even Adam and Eve were forgiven and had a restored relationship with God, so did Seth. And Enoch had such a close relationship with God that he walked with God to the point that he was translated into the very presence of God without seeing physical death, even as Elijah the prophet also was, 
who had a very close relationship with God. But there can come a place where people's hearts become hardened due to the subtle deceptive nature of pride and of self-confidence and self-trust. And so it says in verse 3, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness. This ignorance comes out of hardness of heart, for the word of God makes it clear that their understanding was darkened because of the blindness of their heart. And we understand that the blindness of heart is because of the hardness of heart. And the hardness of heart speaks of the veil that is on one's heart after they have even come to the knowledge of the truth. It is possible to have our heart's heart. And this is very clear from the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4, where it warns us, Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts as they did in the wilderness in the time of testing. And what happens when our hearts are hardened? is that there is a deception that comes in to justify our own shell that we've formed of our own independence in whatever way that comes forth in our lives. And so we develop not only a shell in our heart, but outwardly a shell of religious ritual that allows us to feel like we are still righteous, when in reality, the hardness that has subtly crept in has come to the point where we have been blinded and have begun to establish our own righteousness instead of submitting ourselves onto the righteousness of God. Now in verse 4 it says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to every one that believeth. In other words, it's saying here that the ultimate purpose of the law, the ultimate end of the law, is a relationship with God through Christ. Let us keep in mind that it was Christ that was communicating to Moses on Mount Sinai. God, as the Father, is beyond the time and space realm and government and sees the end from the beginning and he is also the originator. But he communicates with his, with his creation by fully expressing himself into the time and space realm. And the word expression is basically the word for the word son, the government of God within this creation realm. And so when it says here, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth, it is talking about the law actually having an intent that is not onto our own righteousness, but onto a relationship of intimacy with God where he can dwell in our heart because our heart is soft, because we are receptive and have not veiled ourselves with one independent lifestyle or another, whether it's promiscuous or takes on the form of mere ritual religiosity that justifies a promiscuous lifestyle in secret that is not seen by others. It is to every one that believeth. The secret is in believing, and we must understand what the word believeth is. In this passage of scripture here, I'll explain briefly that now, just the meaning of this word believe. The word believe is very similar to the word faith that is used in Romans chapter 10. It will, we will explain the word faith later on, but I will explain basically the meaning of these words. 
The word faith is from the Greek word pistis, and it means persuasion. And secondly means morally conviction. And of course, when one is really persuaded, this in, in this particular context, it's talking about persuasion in the sense of being persuaded to rely upon Christ. The word believeth is very similar. It is pistu, you. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it exactly right, but obviously very close to the word pistis. It simply means to have faith in the sense that it is a belief that reaches out with trust. By implication, it means to entrust, especially one's well-being. In this passage of Scripture, God's wanting to point out his plan for us as individuals and corporately as the body of Christ and also corporately for the nation of Israel, which will be part of this ultimate bride that God is bringing forth in the new Jerusalem. Moses describes the righteousness which is of the law. It says in verse 5, that the man which doeth those things shall live by them. In other words, it is possible to do the works of the law out of an integrous heart before God, out of a genuine fear of God, and experience out of doing that the blessings of a relationship with God. But the God's intention was never that the law would be where our focus would be. The law was not meant to bring us to focus upon ourselves and our own self-sufficiency. And the trap that happens when people harden their hearts and once had a relationship with God is the trap where they begin to focus upon the gift more than the giver. Let's say they went through a great trial and attained spiritual victories and blessings. And God blesses them after going through a time of trying. And they receive, let's say, beautiful children. But soon those beautiful children mean more to them and they're focused more on what's happening in their lives and spend more time with them than seeking God. <clears throat> That's one practical example of what can happen. And so often you can find great revivals <clears throat> throughout history. But out of those great revivals comes great also physical material blessing in time. And then people are at ease and they begin to get their focus on the gift more than their relationship with God. <clears throat> Or they have a great revelation of a particular kind of doctrine. Whether it's a revelation of one truth or another, they have a revelation from God and it's precious to them. It came out of an intimate relationship with God. Then their children grow up and they respect their parents and they appreciate the teaching but now there's all these material blessings and there's not a hunger in the children to seek God. And so more now the revelational truth that they had has become something that has been enshrined to be merely a doctrine that people begin to form a hierarchy of gathering around. And it becomes more of a focus upon the things they've received from God by revelation, which have now become enshrined and become merely by the second or third generation intellectual because the parents have not put their children on the altar so that their children have not been brought forth into that relationship where there's continuance in intimacy with God. People believe that it's merely saying the sinner's prayer 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. I ask Jesus into my heart. That's going to save them. But that can be said merely from the mind and not the heart. Even in this passage, it would seem to imply that it is a very simple thing to believe, as we've read. Because it says here that it's not a hard thing. It says the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and thy heart, the word of faith which we preach. This is in verse 8. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And it goes on, it says, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, in verse 11. This would seem to imply, oh, it's just a simple thing to receive Christ. You just say the sinner's prayer. And actually, that is true. If it's genuinely from the heart, and not merely something that is with ulterior motives to be part of a group that is loving someone and accepting someone, and that means more to them than really any hunger or desire or fear of God that they might have. So Moses here is pointing out that there is blessings in keeping the law. But what happened to the nation of Israel is that they began, as it were, to make the law an idol. For it became the end of righteousness for many because of the hardness that was in their heart. Like the children that begin to enshrine a doctrinal truth but don't know it out of a relationship with God and form a hierarchy around it, which is denominational. And so when others find a greater understanding of that truth, they are a threat unto them and are excluded or cold-shouldered or not received with genuine love, as Christ called us to receive one another equally. But people in a denomination, they'll love the people that are in their denomination, and they'll love the others that aren't in some measure. But there is a difference. They make a difference. There is not a love that is really genuine in many cases. And in many cases, there's no love at all. There's a cutting off. There's a hardness. There's a veil because there isn't the love of God in people's hearts. But God's desire is that we would have such an intimate relationship with God that we would know what it is to have that same love out of that love for God for one another. What happens is that as it says in verse 6, we get to this place where we say this, but the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. That is to bring the one that can bring salvation down from above in your life or total wholeness in every sense of the word that goes on forever without end. Or who shall descend into the deep? That is to bring up Christ again from the dead. But this is the tendency that happens. We begin when there is a hardness to put confidence in ourselves. And the focus that becomes a worship of the law or an enshrining of a doctrinal truth, or whatever it is, that somehow causes us to think we are being pleasing and acceptable to God, is a deception of self-worship. In actual fact, we are trusting in ourselves by focusing on the laws, the source of our righteousness. For whatever we trust in, is where we are putting our worth and our glory and our worship. And so when we, people trust, ultimately, by the way they live their lives, in the things that are of their own self-initiation and self-sufficiency, 
the result is that there is an emptiness inside that they begin to try to fill with other things. The righteousness, which is of faith, speaks on this wise. Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven? This happened to the children of Israel when the Ten Commandments were given and the trumpet was blown. They could not stand to hear the piercing of that trumpet. And they withdrew. The same thing happened with Adam and Eve. They withdrew. Why? Because they took a step of independence from God. When Eve chose to listen to the serpent through the test that she went through, that God allowed, at that moment that she bought into that doubt, she no longer was perceiving God for who he truly is. This is the loss of the fear of God that Eve experienced. Now, I am writing a book on the fear of God that goes into great detail on this, but I just want to share here that the principle of hardness that develops or of independence which began with Satan is the same principle that is emphasized that happens with us also. Of course, with us, because God created us to experience temptation indirectly through the physical, there was the plan of redemption that could happen. And that's a very in-depth thing that I explain in my book. But with Eve, what happened was that she began to perceive God as less than ultimately trustworthy. You see, the genuine fear of God is a choice to perceive God aright as ultimately trustworthy. But you cannot perceive God as ultimately trustworthy without recognizing the absolute purity of his being of love. God's love is a blazing fire of judgment against all that is the slightest contrary to love. In other words, God lo God's love has absolute purity, absolute integrity. It will not tolerate or condone what is the slightest contrary to it. Love is that quality that is always choosing the highest good over any more immediate fulfillments. And therefore, it will judge all that is contrary to those choices. This is the holiness of God. This is the defensive aspect of the love of God. And it is a recognition that God's being is ultimately trustworthy because he has this quality that is a choice that we make. Do we choose to believe that God is ultimately good, that his love is totally pure, and that because of that he cannot tolerate sin? Now, if we only believe that part, it wouldn't make sense. For if God's love is totally pure, he would not create a creation that he could not give destiny and purpose to, for that would imply that he was less than perfect, that his love was less than pure. But the foundation for God being able to give destiny and purpose is in the integrity and the purity of his love, which is the holiness of God, for this is the foundation that allows God to be able to create and be creative and for it to be ever enlarging and ever growing in greater realms and dimensions of fulfillment 
without end forever and ever. And that was ultimately expressed in his power to be able to provide mercy, to provide forgiveness. And it is in the recognition that God is pure in the integrity of his love and that out of that there is the transcendence of his love and the power to assure mercy to those that repent. It is this, these two aspects of God's love, the integrity of his love, and out of that, this, the positive aspect of his love, his mercy, which allows for forgiveness. And it becomes obvious even from the time of the beginning that they recognized that the source of forgiveness was in God alone. And I won't go into it, but I'm sure many of them could even mentally gather that, well, it's obvious that no animal could possibly represent a perfect substitute for sin. Which implies that there must be an absolutely perfect substitute, a being that lives a sinless life. And that implies that it could only be God. And many of them recognize this, even the time of Christ, the, the Pharisees, the Jews, and many others believed that there was a conquering Messiah and a suffering Messiah. They just didn't realize the same Messiah was both the suffering Messiah and the conquering one. And so they assumed, establishing their own righteousness by saying the conquering Messiah must come first and we must initiate it out of our own sufficiency. That happens when there's a hardness of heart that develops. But the subtlety of this hardness of heart is to buy in to this independence that started in the time when Satan fell. He was before the glory of God and entrusted with a very glorious position before God. But somewhere there came a point where when he saw all the glory that was in his being, he began to think, I can be independent from God and become equal with God because I know all of these secrets and these powers. Therefore, I can be independent and become equal with God. And the moment that that happens, obviously, there is a wrong perception of God like Eve had. There is less, there is a, there is, one is not recognizing that God is their life source. One is not recognizing that there's only one source that has absolute integrity and purity that is a devouring fire of judgment against the slightest that is contrary. And so in the lack of that recognition, there is immediately this independence that can happen if there is not the choice to recognize and make the choice to say, God, you're holy, and humble yourself under his mighty hand and utter awe as the angels do. Recognizing there also that even before there was the unfolded plan of the mercy of God, that they recognized the perfection of his being that was totally pure in love and they experienced the glory of it. And that caused them to be in awe of God. And out of that, they recognized God's goodness and mercy to them that they were given the privilege to be created to experience this love and serve this God in utter awe and reverence. And so they saw in the negative aspect, so to speak, the purity of God's love in guarding against all that it was, would be contrary to it. And in the positive aspect, the goodness of God that he created them and that they had destiny and purpose. And with us, that we could receive the mercy of God and have destiny and purpose is also the fear of God. So the aspect of the angel of the fear of God was both a negative and a positive in that sense and with us in another sense. And that was the sense of first recognizing the perfection of his being, that he is righteous 
and then recognizing out of that the greatness of his mercy and goodness to us. But before the fall, Eve lost sight of God through what happened by the temptation that came from Satan. And so it says in 1 John, or is it Hebrews? No, 1 John, that, that the sin, that is Satan's sin, so man sins. And I guess I could turn to it, except that I do not have a Bible immediately available here to do that at the moment. But it, I will just do it anyhow. We'll go to 1 John. I think it's somewhere, in, it might be in 1 John. Probably not worth turning to it, but it says in particular passages of Scripture. No, I think it was in Hebrews. I'll leave it for now, but there's a Scripture that mentions it very clearly. I want to continue with this passage of Scripture here. And all I want to share here today is that we would not be those that would fall into the deception in this generation as the body of Christ or as individuals into this same deception that has continually gone on throughout history, that when God brings revival, there's then blessing, and then when the blessings come, then people become proud and puffed up and fall into this deception. There are many great men of God that were powerfully used of God, and then they began to become proud because God was using them so powerfully, and they began to say things like, well, I am that angel in the book of Revelations or something else, and pride crept in. And the next thing you know, we see that there's judgments that have come in their lives, and I cannot tell you the many examples there are not only in the scripture of this, but throughout church history and even in recent church history. To answer the question of believing on him, this is the secret that Christ said. He said in his word, what shall we do, they asked, to do the works of God? And he says that you should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. But this belief is a persuasion of trust, where you believe with your whole life into something so that it is lived out. It, is, it comes out of the fear of God. For you see, when you choose to recognize God for who he is, there's utter awe, there's utter humility. It brings you to the place of honesty which humbles you and to the place of humility which brings you to the place of honesty to see the utter holiness of God and your undoneness before God apart from God. But you recognize that God is good and he has a plan and he's merciful and that he's provided a way of forgiveness by loving you so much that he suffered more than you, a mere creature and humbled himself more than you, a mere creature. And even there was the recognition that there was that moral quality in God of goodness that he could do that before Christ came. For they recognized, many of them, that only God could be an ultimate substitute for sin because they recognized that God was the source of forgiveness. And there are many Old Testament scriptures where they plainly confess that the animal sacrifice could never suffice. Not even giving our own body as a sacrifice could be a ransom for our sins. And that's from the pre-Christ scriptures. And so in this passage of scripture, Paul the Apostle is describing a plan that God has for the nation of Israel in these three chapters, chapter 9, 10, and 11, and also for us as individuals. But the secret and the answer to it is to grow, is to enter into the genuine fear of God and to grow in the genuine fear of God. You see, when Cain brought his offering before God, 
It was the same principle of getting one's focus on the law and on our own self-sufficiency that is described here in this passage. For this passage, which is describing who shall ascend into heaven or who shall descend in the deep, is simply implying this. It is not within our own self-sufficiency. It is recognizing our indebtedness before God. But when you begin to have offense at God because of the consequences of sin as Cain did, the curse, and God begins to become in some measure an enigma to you and distant to you because your heart is hard, then you begin to form your own perception of God. In Cain's case, religious ritual. He sees God as holy, but he doesn't recognize that the holiness is because of the goodness of God, that his love is a pure love, that it is so pure that it is transcendent with mercy. He lost sight of that, so he thought that he saw God as more like a tyrant, a dictator, and that he needed to do something to appease this God. Doing outward performance is not where it's at. It's an issue of the heart. And when the heart is hard, it veils itself and refuses to face the grasping state of being that is inside, that is a black hole like outer space that is continually grasping, trying to fill that void and cannot. And the moment Lucifer became independent, there was a void in his being that was a black, like a black hole in outer space that could not be satisfied, that could not be filled. And it brought destructiveness like a black hole in outer space does of everything around it. It pulls everything in around it in a destructive way because it is always choosing, making choices that are not out of love, but are always focusing on choices that are less than the highest good, not only for oneself, but for others and for the whole of existence, because it is now being motivated out of seeking to find fulfillment in itself when it is not the source of perfection in love that is totally holy. It is only in God that there is completeness, and it is out of the holiness of God, that is the integrity of his love, that there is wholeness, that there is completeness. And it is out of that completeness that we also will experience beauty. That's why King David says, one thing have I desired of the Lord and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Beauty, the beauty of God. God is the very source of beauty and he is more beautiful by far than his creation. He is the very source of, that's because he's the very source of wholeness. A perfect love that has this integrity. And he's calling us as his people to come to a place in our lives. Where we return to the genuine fear of God. And we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and acknowledge our utter undoneness apart from him. Where we aren't hasty and filled with our own self-initiations anymore, but like it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, God is in heaven and thou upon earth, therefore let thy words be few. We are not presumptuous to be filled with our own ways and our own independence and form our own little shell. Sukkot is where you build booths that are open and that can see the heavens and the stars, and yet you're journeying in this world, but you can see the stars beyond. But we cover it up so we can see nothing and we lose the vision and the revelation of who God is because there's not a rending in our heart. But this passage of Scripture here says very clearly that belief is not merely a mere mental ascent. Because the next verse makes it clear that belief leads unto righteousness. For, the, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And then it says this, 
For whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. But here's the verse. Verse 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's a deep cry from the heart. When one sees who God really is or chooses to see who God really is, like the prodigal son did when he came to the end of himself, he said, doesn't mean you have to necessarily yell out loud and cry, but it means that there's a genuine belief from the heart because you're seeing how great you need the mercy of God and you're recognizing that he can be merciful to you and you're reaching out because you can trust what is ultimately trustworthy, which is only a love that is totally holy that can show mercy, totally integrous that can show mercy. And so you reach out and you say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And there's a call and a belief from the heart. And when your spirit reaches out in faith like that, it is a belief that is a selfless state for boasting is excluded by the law of faith. And when your spirit reaches out from a clenched state like a black hole in outer space and reaches out in recognition of the negative aspect of God and his holiness that is transcendent in this ultimate positive of his mercy and his love. For it is only out of the mercy of God that you can perceive the genuine love of God and have a belief and a trust in something that is totally untrust, that's totally trustworthy. And the only one that is totally trustworthy because he's the very source of completeness. And so in this passage of Scripture here, Paul the Apostle emphasizes in verse 12 that there's no difference between the Jew and Greek. For the same Lord overall is rich unto all that call upon him. But how shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And that is quoted from Isaiah chapter 52. And the context of that quote, of those with the beautiful feet that bring glad tidings, the context is that there's coming a time when the nation of Israel will be restored in their relationship with God. And it says in Isaiah 52, 6, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore shall they know in that day that I am he that doth speak. Behold, it is I. And it talks about those. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of them that bring good tidings and publish peace to God's people, the people of Israel where it says concerning them that they that were my people became are in the place where it is said they are not my people. Speaking of Israel, it shall be again said that they are my people. And so they came to the place where they were like the particle son, no longer part of the family, far away in the wilderness, in mere religiosity. But they are brought to the place where they have the revelation of their Messiah because there are those that out of their relationship with God, the Gentiles, that provoke them unto jealousy, come with love towards them to show them and point them towards their Messiah. And the day will come as a nation where it says in Zechariah that they shall look upon him whom they have pierced and they shall mourn. No, it doesn't say him. It says they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. That's God speaking there when it says they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Yes, their Messiah will come when their self-sufficiency is broken. And when we quit, Give up our own independence. Like Hosea's wife, there was a harlot with the spirit of adultery in her heart that caused her to wander away from God. But God cornered her in the valley of Acre and made the valley of Acre, which means the valley of trouble, a door of hope, for it cornered her to the knowledge of Christ. And it is also true that the law is the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, it says in Galatians. It corners us to the place of recognizing our need of God. 
And as long as we're playing the game of religious ritualism and worshiping the law, which is in fact a deception of self-worship because we're trusting in our own selves and wherever you put your trust is where you're putting your glory and worship. And so God's plan is that Israel, all Israel shall be saved. And it is his call to the body of Christ today to come out of the shells of denominationalism that have caused you to shut up and enshrine your own truths and to repent of these things and lay them on the altar and come out of these things and lay down the self-control and allow God to come and dwell in your midst because you are allowing him to put the stones together as it pleases him so that it will form that house that will be a habitation of God through the spirit for the last days. That is what God is calling his people to in this hour. He's calling them to come back to the first love. And that is a call to come back to the genuine fear of God. Where we know what it is to break up the hardness in our hearts and to humble ourselves under his mighty hand and to have a desperate hunger and thirst to seek him and to wait upon him so that all that is frivolous, that is light, that is shell, that is unreal, that is weird will fall. Yes, Every valley shall be filled and the mountains brought down. When leadership is willing to humble themselves and give up control and then facilitate the body of Christ to move in their gifts, the valleys will come up. The gifts of the Spirit will come up in the body of Christ. We should never be, we should be facilitating people to share in the meetings, to share the gifts of the Spirit, not trying to control them. That will humble even the leadership so they don't think they're too much. Instead of the, the sheep always putting the leadership on a pedestal to the point that they're more focused on them than being conscious of Christ in their midst. It doesn't mean that we don't greatly respect and love leadership. But what it does mean is that we rightly recognize leadership in relation to God as the ultimate center of our gatherings. The gathering is in this hour going to be around Christ. For it is the time of Sukkot. It is the time when we will allow the harness and the shell to break and build those booths that God may dwell among us. That mean we, we may know an identity with God that will allow us truly to be those that are strangers and pilgrims in this world that do not see this world as our city or do not see this as our continuing abiding place, but we seek that of another that is the heavenly Jerusalem, which will come down to the earth. 1,500 mile kilometers long and high, quite amazing. Now, I could share a lot more on this chapter, but time is going on. It says here, in this passage of Scripture, it goes on, after sharing about those with the beautiful feet. And it says, yes, talking of Israel, they, had, they fell. They fell because... They lost genuine faith. Genuine faith comes out of the fear of God. Genuine faith comes when there's a genuine deep turning in the heart. For that is what it says in 2 Corinthians 3. It says, whenever the veil shall be taken away, whenever the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. It's speaking about the veil on the children of Israel of the law. that They could not have the revelation of who God was or is. And this veil is talked about also in Isaiah chapter 28. And I can easily turn to Isaiah chapter 28 and just briefly point this out. I can see that I could probably preach for a long time on this particular passage of Scripture. But we go to Isaiah chapter 28 and we see this secret clearly revealed here, approximately verse 12. 
It's describing, actually, it's a little earlier than that. It starts in verse 8, describing the terrible condition of Israel, their present state from verse 1 to 8. But then in verse 9, it says this, Whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. Now, King David talked about this. I've forgotten exactly where it is in the Psalms. Whether it might be Psalm 13. But he says, I've not behaved myself as proud or as a proud person, but I've been humble like a child sucking his mother's breasts. And so there's this understanding of humility before God. It says in the word of God that thy doctrine shall distill, distill as the dew. The distilling of dew on grass reflects the sunlight and is a picture of the doctrine that comes out of revelation, which by maybe the third generation in many cases in history has become a mere enshrinement without the reality and revelation of relationship with God issuing out of that truth. And so it describes that when we take in the word of God this day, this way as a child on its mother's breast sucking from El Shaddai, the Almighty's one. For precept must be on precept, verse 10. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people. And that is speaking about speaking in a language that we do by the Holy Spirit. You see, when you have revelation, when there's a deep turning in the heart, you see the beauty of God. And when you see that beauty, you're filled with the revelation in your heart of who God is. And you cannot help but want to just be filled with adulation. And you don't know how to put it in words. And it comes out in another language. And it is refreshing and it is a rest. This is not talking about some foreign nation. The context is clear in verse 12. To whom he said, this is the rest, wherewith you may cause the weary to rest. And this is the refreshing, yet they would not hear. Yeah, this is definitely speaking about tongues. This is about being in a place like a child where you can just express your love to God. But when you become religious, it's like it is in verse 13 of Isaiah 28. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. And the purpose of that was that they might come to a relationship like the might come to the place like the prodigal son of being broken so that they would turn back to God as typified in Hosea's unfaithful wife, which speaks of the nation of Israel. That is what's happening. And this passage of Romans chapter 10, I will close soon because it is an hour. It is talking about Faith that comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went into all the work, into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world. So it's not like people don't have the truth. The problem is that people harden themselves against the truth, like Israel did, like Cain did, and like many that have even been very close to God and fallen. The secret to abiding in God is the fear of God. And of the Messiah, it says, the fear of the Lord is his treasure in Isaiah 33, around verse 6 or 5. So God's plan for us is to have this relationship in our individual life where we know the secret of going on to know the Lord and not, and so that when we finish our course, we finish it to the end with an abundant entrance into the kingdom of God. And the secret is in this, that as we've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we are to walk in him. May we be those that in this hour learn the secret of overcoming the deception 
of falling like the church of Ephesus from our first love and walking in an ever-increasing greater baptism of love where we learn out of such a love for God to love one another, to love all God's people, even if they're like a prodigal, to see the diamond in them and to always be those that are ready to be like salt and yet be filled with mercy. God bless you all. Thank you for listening to this message.